You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. Revelation 12, y'all ready for this? I was just kidding about Romans 12. Revelation 12. So here's the deal. I'm not going to preach super long tonight, and there's a reason for that. This is one of those texts. It's a really cool text. Um, honestly, a lot cooler than I thought it was going to be once I dug into it. But something happens at the end that just totally convicts my heart. And, and I'm going to throw out to you at the beginning a question that hopefully will kind of tell you the direction that my heart has been convicted by what happens at the end. Uh, but I want to get to that part. So I'm going to throw this out here in the, in, in the front end. Then we're going to look at Romans. Why do I keep saying Romans? Revelation 12. And uh, kind of chop it up. I'm going to explain it as we go because I want you to understand it. This is a really cool text. But then I want us to get to the end because I think what we see at the end is going to be convicting. All right. So Revelation chapter 12. Since, since studying this text this week, I've been really convicted by this question for myself and for our ministry. My hope is that tonight you'll be convicted by this question for yourself. And here it is. Does Satan see me as a threat? Does Satan see us as a threat? Does he see you as a threat? Does Satan hate me? Does he, does he hate us? Or does he kind of like us? Uh, Charles Spurgeon, pastor from a long time ago in England, he said this. If you ever meet with the church of God, which the devil likes, it is good for nothing. But if it is a true church of God, if it holds the truths of God, and if it walks in holiness, it will always be true. And then he quotes scripture. And the dragon was angry with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Now I'll explain that in a second, but here's the question. Are we a threat to Satan? Is he furious with us? Or is he indifferent to our existence? Sometimes I wonder if our churches and if our ministries face so little resistance because Satan has no reason to bother us. Sometimes I wonder if we face so little resistance because we're not really getting in the way of his plan. And I think Revelation 12 is going to help us answer this question tonight. Are we a threat to Satan? So let's, let's chop it up. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you that up front. We're going to get to that at the end. We're going to see some other things between now and then. Revelation Chapter 12, verse 1. Are you ready? All right, let's do this. Verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, or crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to, heaven, or caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. I want to I chop this up before we go any further. First of all, we've, we've kind of been introduced to three subjects. Uh, the woman, the dragon, and the child. And I want to explain each. 
So let's, let's start with the first, the woman. In a, verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. When you're reading Scripture, you have to ask, especially when it's like this, you have to ask, who is that? What is that? So in this case, who is the woman? Anybody want to throw out a guess? Who is the woman? Okay, I got a bunch of different answers there. Let, 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 let's look at this. Somebody said Israel. Somebody said the church. Somebody said the Virgin Mary. Let's, honestly, those are all answers that uh, different people might give to this text. Those are good thoughts, good guesses. Let's, let's chop it up a little bit further. Look at the description. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. You know, honestly, especially when it comes to Revelation, sometimes the Bible is the best commentary on itself. So I want to show you another text in Scripture that I think is going to shed some light on who this woman is. Flip to Genesis chapter 37. I didn't put it in my notes because I want you to flip, it, flip to it there with me. If it's in my notes, I just read it real fast and move on. So Genesis 37, I figured it would be easy for you to find. First book, the Bible. 37 comes after 36 before 38. If you've got it, say got it. Got it. Awesome. Genesis 37, beginning in verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of some weird names there, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, verse 5, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, if you have a dream like this, don't tell your brothers and sisters. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. I feel like I said something like that to my sister at one point. It wasn't from God, though. Verse 8, his brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? In other words, like, yeah, right, bro. So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Verse 9, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. So hold your spot there. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Who's this woman? Go back to Jacob, his dream. Who was the sun? Who was the moon? And who were the eleven stars? How many brothers did Jacob have? Huh? Yeah, eleven. Who, who is the sun and moon represent? That, who said that? Yeah, his parents. Ma and Pa. Dad is the sun. Mom is the moon. So, fast forward. And, and actually, let me back up again. So, so, Joseph's dad was who? Jacob. What was Jacob's name changed to? Israel. So, you get to the woman. Revelation 12. Woman clothed with the sun, with the moon on her feet, and on her head a crown of how many stars? Twelve stars. There's the giveaway. How many sons did Israel have? Jacob have? Twelve. So, the woman is... Israel. Some of y'all said that at the beginning. I wanted to take the long way and show you how we get that from the text. So, verse 2. She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign, verse 3, appeared in heaven. Behold, 
a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his, and on his heads, seven diadems, seven, seven crowns. So now we got to ask the question, who's the dragon? First of all, look at how the, 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 the dragon is described. He was red, or it, whatever, was red. The red symbolizes violence and bloodshed. Then he's described as having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head, had seven diadems. Those ten horns and seven crowns essentially represent uh, immense power and widespread evil. So who's the dragon? You know, I can always tell if you're sure of your answer or not. Satan. When you mumble, you're like, oh, Satan, I don't know. <laughs> not sure of Satan. Um, look at verse 9. Let's skip ahead and, and cheat a little bit. Verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down. Can't wait to get to that part in a minute. The great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So, who's the dragon? Now think about some of the description there because it, it kind of gives us some insight into who Satan is, how he works. First of all, I think this is interesting. And the great dragon was thrown down that, what does he call him? That ancient what? Serpent. What's that referring to? Yeah, go back to Genesis 3 and you see Adam and Eve meet this serpent. Now, I had somebody come to me one time and say, well, how do you know that the serpent is actually Satan? Like, it doesn't say that in Genesis 3. Boom, here you go. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Eat it, whoever asked me that question. <laughs> the serpent is Satan. Then it describes him, the devil uh, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. That, that, that description is huge. The deceiver of the whole world. The number one weapon of Satan is deception. Now, think about this. little side note here. How do you combat deception? Truth. How do you combat deception? You've got to know the truth. The less you know about the truth, which is revealed in God's word, the more vulnerable you will be to deception. The less that you know about God's word, the more vulnerable you are going to be to the deceiver of the world, who is Satan. So a little side note here, like I just want to challenge you. Like some of you, you are like, man, I'm just, I'm just caught in this pattern of sin over and over and over. The reason you're caught in this pattern of sin is the same reason that Adam and Eve fell into sin in the garden. You remember his tactics there in the garden? He, he deceived them. He questioned God's word. You go back and read. He questioned what God had said to Adam. And the reason Eve fell so easily into that was because she had only received that command from God secondhand through Adam. She, had, she was not very familiar with the truth. They were not very familiar with the truth. You combat deception by knowing the truth. And I just want to challenge you, ask you, do you know the truth? Are you filling yourself with the truth in an effort to combat deception? So that's the dragon. Then we're introduced to a child in verse 5. So verse 5, she, the woman, gave birth to a male child. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Who's the child? Jesus. Uh, flip to uh, Psalm chapter 2 real quick. I didn't put that in my notes either because I want you to go there with me. A little bit uh, to the left of the middle of your Bible. Psalm chapter 2 verse 7. It says this, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
Very similar wording to how this child is described here. And listen to this again. Gave birth to a male child. One is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So he doesn't go into like full depth of Jesus' life. But this is essentially a blanket, broad, quick description of Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, where he currently and continually stands before God to intercede on our behalf. So you got the woman, the dragon, and the child. Look at verse 4. So talking about the dragon. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Here's what you need to see. Satan went to war against God. And in doing so, in the process, he caused the fall of many different angels. That's what the stars represent. Now, here's what you need to understand. Satan, he went after the angels to start with, but that's essentially what he's doing now. He's coming after us now. We'll see that later in the text. What what we're seeing a picture of here is essentially what Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Again, flip there with me. Ephesians chapter 6. It's a little bit to the left in the New Testament. Page 979 in my Bible. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Listen to what Paul says. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The reality is there is an epic spiritual battle taking place. Our fight isn't against other people. Even other people who who are completely opposed to Christianity, who are completely opposed to you, who are trying to even kill you, our fight isn't against those people. Our fight is against the supernatural spiritual powers who are infecting those people. Satan is very much real. The devil is very much alive. And, and I understand that as I start to talk about Satan and the devil and spiritual things, supernatural things, like that makes some of us feel uncomfortable. And listen, listen to this. C.S. Lewis, I, I love what he said in his book, Screwtape Letters. If you're looking for a good book to re- read, Screwtape Letters is great. Uh, he, he said this. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. Now, I see this error a lot in... In, in our churches, like we, we kind of like ignore Satan and the supernatural stuff, which is crazy when you think about it, because everything about Jesus is supernatural. But we, we try to ignore Satan. So one error is to disbelieve in the devil's existence. Then he goes on. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And he goes on to say, they themselves are pleased by both errors. In other words, Satan is pleased by both errors. So two errors are, one is to disbelieve in Satan. The other is to be way too fascinated with Satan. And and, and you know what's interesting is, almost everyone in this room falls into one of those two camps. Satan's goal, we see in verse 4, was to destroy Jesus. He's sitting there waiting for this woman to give birth to Jesus. Unfortunately, For him, he lost that battle. So you get to verse 7. Revelation 12. It says, Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. 
Um, it, I don't know if you're against underlining your Bible, but I have that, that first phrase, now war arose in heaven. And then verse 8, that first phrase, but he was defeated. Both of those phrases underlined. Uh, this morning, I taught in Argyle, Liberty Christian. Um, they do an event leading up to Easter week or Easter weekend called Cross Exam. It's really cool. They get all their middle school, high school students. They cram them all into the gym. About 1,000 students in this gym. And they do three sessions um, where they study the Bible. And the goal is to focus these students' uh, hearts and minds on the cross. That's why they call it cross exam. And one of the things I shared with them this morning, kind of along the same lines, is Easter, sadly, has become one of the cutest holidays. I mean, if I was to ask the, the question in this room, when I say Easter, what do you think of? What would you say? Okay, thank you for being honest right here in the front. See, I, I figured if I said, what do you think of when I, think of when you, when I say Easter, most of you would be like, oh, I think of uh, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ coming down to save us from our sins and resurrecting from the dead. That's what I think of. Man, don't be lying. You're correct. You think of Easter eggs. You think of the stinking bunny rabbit and Cadbury eggs and stuff. Anybody, okay, those who went to Beach Reach, um, did y'all go to that ice cream shop uh, in Pier Park that had that massive chocolate rabbit? Did you see that? Yeah, we, it was for it was it was like four hundred and fifteen something dollars. We went in there, uh, Leslie and I and some other people, and, and I I'm getting my ice cream. I look over and Leslie's standing there like this. <laughs> I was like, walk away, walk away. <laughs> That's what we think of. Easter's become like this super cute holiday, which is so ironic because of all the holidays that. That could become cute. This is the one that should be far from cute. I mean, you think about what actually happened. The gospel, it's like it gets dumbed down into this lovey-dovey, the notebook kind of story. As if God sent you this sappy love letter. The gospel is not good news because someone wrote you a sappy love letter. The gospel is good news because someone waged war on your sin. Sin, which, by the way, was previously undefeated until Jesus got a hold of it. Easter was far from cute. It was bloody, it was gruesome, and it was extremely violent. And that's the picture that we see here in verses 7 and 8. That's that epic battle that took place. What you see in Revelation, it's like Revelation 12. It's like this big, broad picture of everything that has happened prior to Jesus, then when Jesus was here, and then it gets into here in a second what's happening right now in our lives. And this moment in verses 7 and 8, that, that war that's described in heaven, that's what was taking place when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. You read on, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard, heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Four times you see that phrase, thrown down. I've got it underlined every single time in the text. You know what that makes me think of? A few years ago, uh, we had a student in here who was involved in, in MMA fighting. And so me and a couple other people, I think Brandon, you were with me, we went to a Mesquite, Texas, my hometown. And, uh, cool. And uh, 
We saw this dude fight at the uh, Mesquite, uh, I don't know, convention center, right by the Resistall Arena Rodeo. And uh, so it was, it was the craziest thing. Like, you know, you watch UFC. Anybody here watch UFC? UFC? Uh, okay, so you watch centers. You watch UFC <laughs> on TV. I just want to see who you are. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's crazy to watch it on TV. To be there in person and to hear, like, people actually hitting each other and slamming each other and all that stuff in person, up close, it's kind of it's crazy. So we went to see the guy that was in our ministry fight. Uh, he lost really bad. After him... There were these other two guys that came up to fight. They were a little bit heavier, uh, one of those heavier weight classes. And uh, the first guy that comes out, comes out, this is back when Gangnam Style was popular. He comes out to Gangnam Style, and he's doing the whole Gangnam Style dance. I'm not even going to try to do it. And uh, he's like all cocky and stuff. He's like taunting the crowd and, and acting all cocky. He gets up in the ring. He's like running around doing all this crazy cocky stuff. So this next guy comes out, and he just walks out. No music, nothing. He just walks out, gets up in the ring. And, uh, and this other dude's like up in the ring, kind of dancing around, dancing around, staring him down, being cocky and stuff. So they start to fight. And I wish you could have been there. It was awesome. They start to fight. And the non-cocky guy, uh, he takes a few punches in the face. And we're thinking, dang, this cocky dude, he's good. No wonder he's cocky. He's about to bust this dude up. And then he throws a few punches, and he just kind of lets down his guard. He got a little cocky. And the non-cocky guy, this feels weird saying cocky over and over and over. The non-cocky guy finds like this, 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 this weak spot and he, he grabs the cocky guy and he picks him up and he body slams him. Now, to give you an, a picture here of how crazy this body slam was, he picks him up and flips him over like he's holding him like this and he jumps up to body slam him. By the time he body slammed him, both of their legs were in the air when they hit the ground. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> the cocky guy was out after the body slam. But the ref didn't jump in to stop it yet. So the non-cocky guy jumps on top of him and just starts to punch him. And here's how he's punching him. He's punching him like this, hits him with his fist, and comes back with his elbow. He's just doing this the whole time. And Brandon and I are, are kind of like a mixture of like, oh, ooh, oh, ooh, you know? A little bit of that going back and forth. And so finally the ref stops him. And moves him off. And this dude is not moving. Am I right? He was not moving. And I'm literally thinking, oh man, Brandon, we just watched a dude get killed. <laughs> and uh, he doesn't move for like five minutes. They're on, you know, on top of him, like trying to wake him up and stuff. And finally he starts to wake up. But he did not get up forever. I mean, it was, it was, it was awesome. Here's why I share this. Here's why I share this. Four times you see Satan was thrown down. And I just think about this and think Satan stepped into the ring all cocky and Jesus quickly put him in his place. Which, by the way, is on the floor, unconscious. This was the most epic, supernatural, spiritual beatdown in history. Jesus' death on the cross was essentially a supernatural body slam to Satan, finishing him off. Um, and you look at what it says, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation... And the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So it says salvation, power, kingdom, and authority have come. We, because of this battle that has been won on, behalf, on our behalf, we receive salvation. We see true power. We are affected by that power and we are recipients of that power. He establishes his kingdom and then he invites us to be a part of his kingdom and he received, Jesus received authority to judge and redeem, therefore making his word the final word on all matters of who should enter the kingdom of heaven. 
John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The reason he says that is because he's the only one who has the authority to say that, and he gained the authority in saying that when he defeated Satan. You read on, verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Essentially, God gives us the plan for defeating Satan right here. His plan for conquering Satan is Jesus dies on the cross and resurrects from the dead, and then we go tell people about him. Uh, the blood of the Lamb, you know, it says that very first part, the blood of the, the, uh, they've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb does not do you any good until it's been applied to your life. Have you ever thought about that? Like, it's one thing to know that this stuff happened. It's another thing altogether to allow that thing that happened to take effect in your life. Some of you really need to learn the difference between the two. Knowing it happened and having what happened to take, take, take effect in your life. Some of you are yet to apply the blood of the Lamb to your life so that it takes effect and, and cleans you of your sins. You need to do that. The blood of the Lamb doesn't do you any good until it's been applied to your life. In the same way, the blood of the Lamb doesn't do others any good until it's been applied to their lives. And that's the second part of this right here. They've conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. In other words, the way that we conquer Satan is by one, allowing God's uh, sacrifice on the cross to take effect in our lives and then to go out and share the gospel with other people so that it takes effect in their lives as well. So the call is to share the gospel. So to the beach readers in the room, those who went with us to Panama City, I'm glad that you went with us. But honestly, it doesn't mean much if you come back here and don't do the same thing that you were doing there. Like, like for some of you, sharing the gospel at Beach Reach was really out of the ordinary for you. And, and to some extent, like, that's okay, and here's how it's okay. For some of you, you're early in your walk with Christ, and like, that was like your, your initial training ground for that. Others of you, you've been a believer for a long time. And, and, and here's, the, here's the case. If you've been a believer for, for a long time and going to Panama City Beach was out of the ordinary for you, like to share the gospel with that kind of intentionality was out of the ordinary for you, let me tell you essentially what you're doing. Essentially what you're doing is you are stepping over the dead and dying that are sitting right on your front porch so that you can go to the beach and share or, or aid the dead and dying at the beach. Why? Like we should take care of business here before we even think about going anywhere else. I mean, if we're stepping over the dead and dying here so we can go to the beach and care for the dead and dying there, honestly, you want to know what you're doing. You're not going on a mission trip. You're going on a glorified vacation. So then you get to verse 12. I'm sorry, I feel like that came out without grace coding it. Hopefully you received it with grace. Verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you. Here, here's, here's the other side of this, is we do need to rejoice. Understand that Jesus has won the victory. He has defeated Satan. And that's why we rejoice. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. It's, it's like you know your lease is up and you're just a terrible tenant and so you just go crazy and like bust walls and stuff. That's why this world is so jacked up. I don't know if you saw the news today, but, but Brussels, the terrorism attack, at least 30 people have died, 100 and something people have been injured, and probably more will die as a result of their injuries. That's why that kind of stuff happens. Satan, he's pissed. I don't know if I can say that in a sermon, but he's pissed. And, and he is trying to wreak as much havoc in the time that he has left. 
You know, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about all this, all the stuff with Planned Parenthood this past year that came out, like, and just abortion in general. And I want to, I want to come back on this and just say, like, I understand there's some people in here who have, who have been affected by abortion. Like, you've either had an abortion or know people or close to you who've had an abortion. I, w- I want to say this. You've got to hear me say this. Like, like God, like He has forgiveness for that. He has grace for that. And 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 look, like if that is something that is that you have done or encourage somebody to do you need to know that jesus loves you and there is grace there for that uh this isn't this isn't like you just need to understand that okay saying that though like i'm, I'm thinking about planned parenthood planned parenthood and abortion and thinking like the killing of millions of babies and then even like the selling of their body parts like how does that happen i mean the only way that happens this explains why it's happening satan's pissed and he's trying to just wreak as much havoc as he can Thinking about things like all the, you know, the sex trafficking statistics that are, that are floating around right now and, and just the reality of that, even in our county. I mean, it's crazy that that stuff is happening. But this makes sense of it. Satan has been defeated. He's been thrown down here to the earth. And he knows his time is short. And so he's just trying to wreak as much havoc as he can. Then you look at verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been Thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman who was, who was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. I don't need to explain that, right? You understand all that? It's good? So we can move on? Let me do my best at explaining what we just read there. So remember, the woman is Israel. The dragon is Satan. And, and, and here's essentially what is happening here. The dragon is angry. Satan is angry. So he's trying to destroy Israel, God's, God's people. Um, but what you see here is, it says, um, specifically it says, but the earth came to the help of the woman. The earth came to the help of Israel. Let me tell you what I think is happening. First of all, what I think of, honestly, is like the Holocaust. And I don't think this is necessarily talking specifically about the Holocaust. I think it's talking more in general. I mean, you, you look at Iran right now. They have just straight up said their whole goal is to destroy Israel. Um, but, but what is interesting here is it says that Satan tries to destroy Israel. He can't, and he can't because the earth came to the help of the woman. What I think that means is God uses all different kinds of means to accomplish his mission and preserve his people. And I think one of those means is oftentimes political powers. I mean, you look throughout history, even, you know, if you want to just kind of hone in on the Holocaust, like he used essentially political powers to end that. And and so I think what it's talking about here is Satan trying to destroy Israel, but he, he doesn't, he can't. So verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Who's the rest of her offspring? Us. Because it is through Christ that we who are not of Israel are brought into the fold as God's children. So verse 17 is where it really hits home. It says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So the question that I've been wrestling with this week is, does Satan see me as a threat? Does Satan see us as a ministry, as a threat? 
Does he hate us or, or does he like us or is he just indifferent to us? And so I want to look at what truth we can pull from this verse. And here's the, here's the biggest thing that we can pull. Satan is warring against people. But it's not just any people that he's really warring against. I mean, it says there's a specific kind of people that he's making war against. There, there's a specific kind of people that, he's, that he hates. There's a specific kind of people that he sees as a threat. So again, the question is, are you a threat? Does he hate you? And we see the answer here, verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And here is the people that he hates. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is the type of person that Satan sees as a threat. A person who keeps God's commandments and holds to the testimony of Jesus. Now I want to break that down for you real quick. Let's start with the second description. A person who holds to the testimony of Jesus. In other words, these are people who stand on the truth of God's word. No matter how countercultural it might be. They stand on the truth of God's word and they proclaim God's word. Some of you, you're not a threat to Satan because you're not standing on God's word. You're wavering. Some of you, you're not a threat because you don't even know God's word. Like, how can you stand on something that you don't know? Some of you, you listen more to culture than to God's word. In other words, you use culture to be the lens through which you interpret the Bible rather than using the Bible to be the lens through which you interpret culture. Huge difference. Some of you, you're not a threat because you're not proclaiming God's word. You'll go on a mission trip, but as soon as you get home, the intentionality is gone. So the first description of the type of people that is a threat to Satan are those who uh, hold to the testimony of Jesus. The second description is those who keep the commandments of God. Some of you, you're not a threat to Satan because of sin. How can you be a threat to Satan when you're following Satan? And don't take offense to this, but, but here's the reality. That's what we're doing when we indulge in sin. We're doing exactly what he wants us to do. So if we're doing exactly what Satan wants us to do, how can we be a threat to Satan and what he's trying to accomplish? Some of us, we're not a threat because of sin. And, and let me, this, this next part, this is what's convicting to my heart the most. Some of us are not a threat because we're not doing some of the things that God has commanded us to do. See, God's commandments aren't all about don't do this, don't do that. A lot of his commandments are you need to do this, you need to do that. And think about this. What, what was the last command that God gave us? Maybe the most important command that God gave us. Matthew 28, go make disciples. You are not a threat to Satan if you are not making disciples. We are not a threat to Satan if we are not making disciples. I'll just tell you, a couple weeks ago, I was super convicted by Genesis 1.28. I want you to flip there. Leslie and I, we were going through premarital counseling, and this, this verse... 
was a verse that was part of our homework. And as we were working through it, I was just so convicted by it because I've always read this in a very physical sort of way. Genesis 1.28 says this, but I, I'm, I've always read it in a very physical sort of way, but the reality is I think, I think it really has much, it's, it's really much more to be read in a spiritual sort of way. So Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. So when I've read be fruitful and multiply, I've always read it as God saying, When you get married, be fruitful and multiply. And that's true. <laughs> it's going to get even more awkward once we get married, I'm just telling you. <laughs> Though that's true, and that is part of what he's saying, he's saying something much bigger than that. Spiritually speaking, he is saying that he, I mean, this, is his, this is his mission. Genesis 1, he is laying out his mission. He is laying out his plan. And you see the culmination of this in Revelation. But he's saying in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. Spiritually speaking, he wants us to be fruitful. He wants us to bear spiritual fruit. He wants us to multiply, make disciples. And honestly, this text isn't just for married people. It's for single people. For the married people... It's be fruitful and multiply. So spiritual sense, be fruitful and multiply. Physical sense, be fruitful and multiply. And then spiritual sense, on top of that, be fruitful and multiply. As you make babies, make disciples out of those babies. For the single person, it still stands true, not the make babies part, but the make disciples part. You know, something I I, I thought about as I was studying this. Islam is one of the It is the fastest growing, I believe, the fastest growing religion in the world right now. It's crazy, the projected numbers there. But you want to know why it's the fastest growing religion? It's not because of conversion rate. It's because of birth rate. According to the statistics I could find, um, the birth rate among Muslim women is 3.1 children per Muslim women. Do you know what the birth rate is in the United States? It's not even enough to, uh, I can't remember the terminology here, but to like, keep a society going. It's 1.88 children per woman. And here's what's happening with Islam. The reason they're growing so fast is because they're having so many babies, and then they're essentially making disciples out of those babies. Now for us, we're not having babies because, honestly, it's inconvenient to our American dream plans. It is. We are too focused on success and money and fame. And honestly, babies, unless you you have LeBron James, it's not going to aid you in having success. Uh, And it's definitely not going to aid you in the whole money situation. But, But on top of that, we don't see... Reproduction and having babies as the number one discipleship opportunity that it is. Which isn't surprising that we don't see it as a discipleship opportunity because we don't see the opportunity to make disciples of anybody at all. 
So at the risk of oversimplifying all of this, are you a threat to Satan? Am I a threat to Satan? Are we a threat to Satan? Here's the answer. If you're not making disciples, then you are not a threat to Satan. In fact, I would argue that if you're not making disciples, he probably likes you. Even though he doesn't have you if you are in Christ, he probably probably likes you. So real quick, I want to flip to Matthew 28, verse 19. Flip there with me. After Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. First of all, Jesus prefaces all this by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. How you respond to the therefore go reveals what you truly believe about the all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. See, many of us claim that he has authority. Many of us claim that we believe Jesus is who he says he is, yet we completely ignore his command to go and make disciples. How can you believe he has all authority in heaven and on earth to command you to do something but not do it? See, many of us, we believe that he has the power to save us, but we don't believe that he has the power to send us. How can you believe he has the power to save you, but not the power to do the lesser thing, which is to send you? So he says, go make disciples of all nations. What, how do you make disciples? Some of you may be asking that question, and I don't blame you because honestly, you've not had that example to look at from anybody else. Most of you, nobody's tried to disciple you. But the reality is that doesn't excuse you from the command in God's word to make disciples. So if you don't see where this is going, the challenge is go make disciples. How do you make disciples? Here you go. He says that the only command in that text is make disciples. The description of that command is going, baptizing, and teaching. So here's how you make disciples. Number one, go. Some of you might ask, well, where do I go? He says all nations. So anywhere. doesn't matter where you go. Go anywhere. Make disciples anywhere. We make it way more complicated than it is. We sit here and think, I don't know where God's calling me. I need to pray and figure out where God's calling me. God's calling you to go anywhere. Anywhere. Make disciples. Just make disciples anywhere. It's really not so much a matter of where, it's a matter of how. The go isn't a matter of where, it's a matter of how. How do you go? Like, you don't just get in your car and drive unless you're just angry, trying to blow off steam. But even then, you're going with intentionality. Every time you get in your car or you get up out of your seat and you walk somewhere, you're going somewhere intentionally. So the go is more about intentionality. So how do you make disciples? Intentionally. Disciples don't happen accidentally. So the first question, the first thing of how to make disciples is do it intentionally. You have to set out to do it intentionally. You intentionally pursue somebody. You intentionally pour into somebody. You intentionally spend your time discipling, spend your resources discipling. So make disciples. How it go? Second, baptizing. Now we know that baptism is symbolic. It's symbolic of uh, something that's happened in somebody's life. You stood condemned to die until Christ got a hold of your heart. So that means that his death, boom, buried in the grave, becomes your death. And his resurrection, raised up out of the grave, becomes your resurrection. So baptism represents somebody coming to know Christ. So to baptize, that's the, that is the initial part, really, of making a disciple. Sharing the gospel with them, leading them to Christ. So to make disciples, you have to, you have to intentionally go and share the gospel. You have to intentionally go and share the gospel. Now, baptizing them. The other thing that this kind of implies is how can you make disciples if you yourself essentially aren't one because you haven't been baptized? You know, some of you claim to know Christ, but... You're unwilling to take that step of faith of baptism. 
So how can you make a disciple of somebody else if you yourself haven't been baptized? I just want to challenge you to consider taking that step if you haven't. So how do you make disciples? Go. Number one. Two, baptize. Number three, uh, he says, teaching. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. This is where I think we as the church fail. We get so hungry for numbers and statistics that we stop with, oh, somebody prayed to receive Christ today or somebody got baptized today. We don't celebrate anything beyond that. Honestly, I think more than celebrating the moment somebody prays to receive Christ is we should celebrate the the 10-year moment, the 20-year moment when somebody's still following Christ. But the only way people are going to still be following Christ 10 years later, 20 years later, is if we teach them how to do so on the front end. So how do you make disciples? you got to intentionally go. Then you have to intentionally share the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then teach them to obey all that he that he's commanded us. Some implications there are, are one, that means you have to intentionally like use words, use time to pour into somebody. Here's the other thing, the bigger thing. How can you teach somebody to obey all God's commanded you if you don't know what God's commanded you? To be an effective disciple maker, you have to be in God's word. So it all goes back to this issue of are we a threat? Oswald Chambers, he said this. I'll close with this. Oswald Chambers, he said, we are not meant to be Carried to heaven on flowery beds of ease. We are given the fighting chance, and it is a glorious fight. Jesus Christ came to fit men to fight. He came to make the lame, the halt, the paralyzed into terrors to the prince of this world. Are you a terror to the prince of this world? He goes on to say, no man is a match for that warfare unless he is saved by God's grace. If you've been saved by God's grace, you're fit to fight. If you've been saved by God's grace, you're meant to fight. If you've been saved by God's grace, your call is to make disciples. If you've been saved by God's grace, there's no reason that you should not be a threat to the devil. You ever notice that Paul doesn't say, I danced a good dance. I fought a good fight. That's what he says. So here's the question. Are you a threat to Satan? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.